What if the laws that allow billions of dollars of dark money to drive American politics are based on a clear mistake? One of America's most prominent legal scholars thinks that's exactly what happened, and he's going to give someone $50,000 to help improve it. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics, and we're available everywhere you get your podcasts, including the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. Our guest, Lawrence Lessig, is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School and the founder of Equal Citizens, an advocacy group whose mission is to fix democracy by establishing truly equal citizenship. On Labor Day, September 4th, 2023, Equal Citizens will launch a video competition with at least one $50,000 prize for whoever can clearly and concisely explain the legal argument for why super PACs can be regulated. And Professor Lessig is here to tell us all about it. Welcome to Beyond Politics. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So help us review the basics here in terms of what exactly are super PACs and how did they come into being? Yeah, so most people who think anything about this issue know about a Supreme Court case decided in 2010, January of 2010, Citizens United. And what Citizens United said was, if a corporation, like an individual or a labor union, spends its money independently of a political campaign, there could be no justification for restricting that speech. Because if it's independent, there couldn't be anything called quid pro quo corruption, this for that corruption associated with it. Now, that decision terrified many people. Many of us thought corporations were gonna spend billions of dollars to buy politics. But it's actually a decision, not by the Supreme Court, but by the DC Circuit, a lower federal court, three months after that, that created all the problem. That decision, it's called Speech Now versus FEC, decided in March, 2010, held that if you can spend unlimited amounts of money, because there could be no quid pro quo corruption. You should be able to give unlimited amounts of money to a political action committee that will then spend that money independently of the political candidate. Because there too, the court said, as a matter of logic, as they said, quote, as a matter of law, which means there could be no facts to the contrary. The court said, as a matter of law, there could be no quid pro quo corruption, so there could be no re reason to limit those contributions. That decision created the super PAC. And super PACs, beginning in 2010, have now grown to be the most important money in any major political campaign, from presidents to members of Congress to state legislatures to Supreme Court justices to local school boards. All of these now are dominated by these huge contributors. And what we believe we can show, based on arguments made by really, truly a great legal scholar, Larry tribe, my colleague at Harvard, and Al Alshuler, my former professor at Chicago, and, and also Free Speech for People, we believe we can show the logical mistake, simple, obvious, logical mistake that the DC Circuit made, which should lead courts to realize that, in fact, the First Amendment does not protect super PACs, and that states and Congress should have the constitutional power to limit those contributions to avoid the obvious quid pro quo corruption they create the risk of producing. Before we have you lay out what that logical error was, could you just help us understand the scale of the problem? I could almost see, not our listeners and viewers who are well-versed, and obviously they've had 
people like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on the show talking about the ills of dark money in our system. But from your standpoint as an advocate, how severe is this problem? How much is it warping American politics? I think it is the most important problem. Henry David Thoreau used to say for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's one striking at the root. This is the root. And it's the root because what every politician knows is that they can't take on any issue that's likely to trigger the response of these massive super PACs. And what makes them important, what makes them dangerous, in my view, is not necessarily the amount of money. I'm not sure how much money we should spend in politics. What makes them dangerous is the incredibly small number of people who actually control what those super PACs do. What's important here is the concentration in donors to a very small, the New York Times estimated something like 140 families were controlling American politics because of the size of these super PACs. And that concentration means if you don't like, uh, if you take on an issue, these super PACs don't, you have no chance to survive in American politics. Here's a very clear example. We're experiencing an incredible range of climate crises right now. Arizona has had 30 days straight of 110 degree weather. We've suffered Mars-like conditions because of wildfires in Canada. There's the greatest fear that 20 years ago, they thought wouldn't happen until 2100, but now might happen as soon as 2025, that the Gulf Stream inverts. All of this because we've not done anything effective about climate change. Why? People might not remember, but until 2010, both the Republicans and the Democrats believed in climate change and believed they had a solution to fixing the problem of climate change. In 20, 2008, John McCain thought he had a better plan than Barack Obama, and maybe he did. But the point is, there was no problem. There was no shame in acknowledging the problem of climate change. Then in 2010, the Koch brothers began to make it known that any Republican who even acknowledged the truth of climate change would find themselves primaried, meaning they would find themselves challenged in their primary. And almost overnight, the Republican Party went from a party that had a different set of ideas for solving the problem of climate change to a party that couldn't even acknowledge the truth of climate change. And that was because literally a handful of people decided that they would spend their billions of dollars to make sure that this issue was not a viable issue for Republicans, which means not a viable issue in the United States Congress, given how close the division is with the role of the filibuster in Congress. So the point is, it's this is not a democracy. This is a banana republic democracy when a tiny few have this ability to veto what the majority would want, and they can do that because of these super PACs. So what is the mistake that was made in assuming that super PACs are required by the First Amendment? What is, what's the legal argument that overcomes that mistake? Okay, so first you have to understand what the D.C. Circuit thought it was deciding. If you imagine a political action committee that's raising money to spend independently of a campaign, they say, we're going to raise money and we're going to elect Democrats to the Senate, or we're going to raise money and we're going to elect Republicans to the Senate. The D.C. Circuit imagined was, okay, well, imagine a rich guy goes up to that super PAC and says, I'll give you $100 million if you will support Southern Democrats, or if you will support Southern Republicans, or if you support Republicans who don't support climate change, whatever. And what the D.C. Circuit thought is if that donor makes a deal with the super PAC, that's not the kind of corruption that Congress has the power to regulate. The only corruption Congress has the power to regulate is a deal that's related 
to a politician. Mm -hmm. So if a politician makes the deal, then of course it's corruption. Congress can regulate it. But if it's independent of the politician, then there's no corruption. And that's what the DC Circuit imagined it was talking about. Okay, but skip ahead to 2018. There's a prosecution of a Democratic senator in New Jersey, Robert Menendez. The charge against Robert Menendez wasn't proven. The jury rejected the facts, but here was the charge. The charge was a rich person from Florida said to Robert Menendez, I will give money to your super PAC if you will agree to do the following favors that I want done for my friends in Florida. And the allegation was Menendez agreed. So the point is, there was a deal with a politician to fund a super PAC that obviously involves quid pro quo corruption. And so because it involves quid pro quo corruption, it's exactly the same kind of problem that exists whenever you're talking about large contributions to an individual. The fear, the reason why we can limit contributions to individual candidates is the fear that there'll be a deal in there somewhere. If I can give you a million dollars in your campaign, people rightfully worry, maybe I'm doing that because you've made a deal with me. That's what exactly happened or alleged to have been occurred in the Robert Menendez case. And this, the DC Circuit didn't even consider, this possibility they didn't consider, which is why they said as a matter of law, which means there's no possibility that corruption could exist. There is no corruption in this case. But once you see this is not only possible, but when we're talking about contributions of millions of dollars, seems pretty likely, then you see there should be, there clearly is a legitimate reason why Congress or the state should have the power to limit those contributions, just like they have the power to limit contributions to indiv individual campaigns from large donors. So let me just follow up for a quick second. <laughs> As a member of Congress, I had my own experiences with people giving me a wink and a nod about political contributions. I had some wonderful time, some wonderful times with that. And we were always talking about the influence of, of PACs and the wink and the nod really is what goes on in Congress about the independence of the PACs. And it sounds like the D.C. Circuit simply assumed that because PACs are supposed to be independent, but in practice, frankly, are, in my experience, often much less than independent, not exactly coordinated, but there are winks and nods and a code that can be spoken between campaigns and PACs. But the DC Circuit apparently ignored the reality of that and just said these giant super PACs can give money to the PACs. The super PAC is thus removed from the candidate. The PAC is, of course, removed from the candidate. So it's all okay. But they ignored the reality. I think you're right. They ignored the reality. What they would say in response to Congressman Hode is, Look, we're not talking about cases where you can show that there was some kind of coordination. In those kind of cases, yes, of course, you can regulate the contribution. And indeed, in states like Maine, if there is coordination, then the contribution is considered to be a contribution to the candidate, which has to be limited under the ordinary law. But what the DC Circuit said was, look, what we are saying is if there is independence in the spending, by logical necessity, there has to be independence in the contribution. And that's the logical claim, which undergirds the whole of this super PAC jurisprudence. It is just obviously false because again, in the Menendez case, there you had the super PAC, which was acting independently of 
Robert Menendez. Nobody was saying that Menendez was directing the super PAC. So the Menendez, the super PAC was certainly independent, but clearly the contribution to the super PAC was not independent. And so if the contribution was not independent, if the contribution was dependent, that raises exactly the concern about corruption that has traditionally justified laws which restrict the size of a contribution. Think again about the normal case. When you were running for Congress, if I came up to you and I said, I'm gonna give you $1,000 for your campaign, that's permitted under the existing law. If I said to you, I'll give you $10 million for your campaign, that's not permitted under existing law. Why? Not because every time somebody tries to give you $10 million, they say, only if you agree to do X, Y, and Z for me, but because a reasonable person could look at that and think, yeah, if they're giving him $10, $10 million, there's probably some kind of deal going on back there. So I'm losing confidence in our political system when I believe that these politicians are being bought by these large contributions. That's why the Supreme Court said you can limit those contributions. Now, the people who are attacking those limits in the first case that considered this, Buckley versus Vallejo in 1976, the people attacking those limits said, you're attacking bribery. You're saying bribery is illegal. And yes, of course, bribery is illegal. So just ban bribery and you don't have to worry about limiting contributions. But what the court said is, yeah, of course, bribery is illegal, but that's hard to police. So what we're going to say is it's okay to limit contributions in addition to banning bribery, mm -hmm. to raise confidence that people have in the political system where there is a risk of quid pro quo corruption. And all we're saying is obviously the same risk exists with super PACs. And if it exists with super PACs, just like with direct contributions, then states and Congress should be free to limit those contributions to make sure that the public doesn't have the kind of cynicism we all know that the public has when they look at the way politics works right now. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. What I find most compelling about your argument is to hone in on the idea of limits on contributions. Because as you say, it's so hard to police the concept of an appearance of an exchange of favors here. The reality is we all know what time it is, those of us who have been a member of Congress like Paul or who have staffed members of Congress and raised money for members of Congress like me. I know full well when I advise Paul as a member of Congress, I say, hey boss, there is a vote coming up and this is what the labor unions want you to do. And I, we have a fundraiser who sits down the street and he will tell us, I've had these conversations more times than I can count. He will tell us, look, man, you'd better vote this way. And then I can make my phone calls and I will get all those $5,000, which is the limit of a regular PAC contribution from all these labor unions. I have a list of a hundred labor unions here. They will give to you or they will not. And so that kind of exchange of this is what these groups are in favor of and you need to act a certain way, that is impossible to police. Right. The only thing that you can regulate is a limit on the size of contributions. That makes a ton of sense to me. Here's the challenge that I'm gonna to pose to you. This Supreme Court has ruled in conceptually similar matters in the last 10 years. For example, they overturned the conviction of Virginia Governor Bob O'Donnell, who was receiving gifts and benefits. There is an appearance of a quid pro quo. There was just never this moment where he said, 
I would like to have an exchange of favors with you. Let's do that, and I will take this money from you. You have Clarence freaking Thomas, who is embroiled in the same arrangement with Harlan Crow, not to mention other members of the Supreme Court. Is there a way around that barrier? That seems like a substantial barrier, or is the focusing on the limit on contributions the way that you get around that? This argument relies exclusively on the position advanced by Chief Justice Roberts, mm. one of the most conservative justices on the Supreme Court about campaign finance. Because what Roberts has said, and I wanna talk about the campaign finance cases, not the bribery cases, which I think are crazy for all sorts of independent reasons, but- I'm with you. Finance <laughs> cases, where the court has struck down limits, the court has again and again said, look, you can only impose these limits where there's some risk of quid pro quo corruption. And if there's no risk of quid pro quo corruption, you can't impose the limits. And so what we're saying is great, let's embrace that way of thinking, not because you think it's right from ground zero, not because you think it's realistic about the way Washington works, but because you're like, this is the chief justice of the Supreme Court. This is the one of the most important votes you could be fighting for in trying to establish the power of states and Congress to establish these limits. So let's say, let's embrace your words exactly. And let's embrace your logic exactly. Here is how your logic applies to super PACs. It's plainly obvious that contributions to independent political action committees can raise the same risk of corruption that contributions to candidates can. It's the same dynamic. And even if you don't think it happens 100% of the time or 50% of the time or even 10% of the time, what the court has said is where there is that risk, you can establish limits on contributions for exactly the reason you say, Matt, because that's the only thing that we can effectively police. If you're a member of Congress, I mean, there were members of Congress like this, the stupid members of Congress who would say Cunningham, you knew Cunningham, right? Uh, yes. Oh, gosh. Well, yes. Go on. Yes. Duke. 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 There it right. is. Cunningham. Duke. The guy wrote down on a piece of paper the size of the bribe and what he would get in exchange, what they would get in exchange for it. Okay. Those guys are idiots. That's not how Congress works. What Congress does is they learn how to do the dance. They dance in the way to get the money they need. And that's just the way it works. And there's very little we can do about it. Now, my view is in a certain sense, if you tell me that you're telling a congressperson, here's what you need to do to maintain your support from labor, as long as that means the support from the voters who support labor, I'm all in favor of that. That's what democracy is. Like you're trying to figure out how you build a majority. You build a majority of votes, people, every person with one vote. They're the ones who get to support you in the election. And I'm even okay with the idea of raising money on the basis of what you support, as long as those contributions are relatively small. I favor democracy vouchers, which is like giving everybody a voucher that they could use to help fund campaigns. So if you said to me, look, this is what you need to do to get the support of the members of the union so that they give you their voucher, I'm all in favor of that. That's what democracy is build support for the ideas in the political process. What I'm against, what I think our constitution does not require is the idea that five or six people get to sit around a dinner table and decide how billions of dollars will be spent in the political process and the rest of Washington like bending over backwards to make sure they never upset that those billions of dollars because they know if they do, they're just never gonna get elected. That's the corruption, the dependence on this tiny few to fund these elections. And 
limiting contributions is one way to make sure it's not a tiny few. It's a few more, but it's not five. It might be 5,000 or 500,000. And that's better than the system we have right now. All right, so now I've got to press you on something while we're speaking of money. You're a Harvard professor, man. You're also a legal scholar. So usually you make these arguments in classrooms or in courtrooms. What you're doing here with this initiative is a very unusual approach. You are crowdsourcing a prize for anyone who's listening to this, anyone who's watching this, to get in on trying to create a piece of content that explains what you just laid out in an entertaining, coherent, concise way. Why are you doing things this way? What gave you this idea? So it's extraordinary frustration with my lawyer, my lawyer colleagues, with the, le with the legal establishment itself. Basically, the conventional wisdom among lawyers, if you polled 100 lawyers who know what the word super PAC means, and that's not all lawyers, but let's imagine we get the 100 lawyers who knows what super PAC means, and you said to them, does the First Amendment protect super PACs? I think 90 of them would say, obviously, yes. That the, a bunch of them would say, because the Supreme Court has said so, flat out false. But those who know the Supreme Court hasn't said so, but at least have seen what the Supreme Court has said, would say the decisions of the Supreme Court make that perfectly clear. I've seen, I was in part of litigation in Massachusetts where we tried to get the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court as well as the Attorney General to recognize the mistake here. And we filed hundreds and hundreds of pages of briefing, literally hundreds of pages of briefing. And the reality is people don't read. They don't pay attention. They don't think about it. Like they think they know what the answer is and why waste time? thinking about something they already know what the answer is. So what we thought is we got to find a way to break through this conventional wisdom to give people a chance to step back and say, whoa, I missed something here because clearly the DC circuit missed something here. And if we could begin to break, crack this conventional thinking, then we can recruit many more people around the country to begin to take up this fight again to establish the ability for us to limit the size of these contributions to super PACs to get us back something closer to a democracy. It's still, until we have public funding, won't be a democracy, but something closer to a democracy. So I responded to my own people's ability, inability to grapple with this. And I thought a pretty good video, pretty good meme, pretty good way for a bunch of non-boomers to say, hey, boomer, you've missed something here, pretty fundamental, might be a way to break through. So it's the first step. We, we've got a big we got a series of steps, a series of plans for how we're going to get this issue up to the court and get the and give Chief Justice Roberts the chance to surprise everybody by writing the opinion. I think it'll be seven to two. It could be nine zero, depending on whether the originalists are faithful to their philosophy. But at least seven to two, they say, yeah, of course, you can limit contributions to super PACs, just like you can limit contributions to PACs or to candidates. But it's going to take a bunch of steps to get there. And this, we think, is the first step. So well, I just I realized we're idiots. Do you realize, <laughs> do you realize how dumb this is? You are, in addition to being a former prosecutor and member of Congress, you're a rock musician. You have an act. You've won awards for creative music writing. I have a YouTube channel with 25,000. I make videos every freaking day. And here we are telling all of our subscribers and listeners, top 2% podcast on earth. We're telling everybody about this. I know. I, I want the money. Let's, I know. So why are we I'm, telling people about I, this? I'm going to write the song. Lawrence, you are <laughs> about to be suppressed. You're going to make, <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna to make the video. Out. I canceled well, the show. So wait a second. I'm, I'm going to assume, first of all, that no super PAC is putting up the $50,000. That's number one. <laughs> Num number two. 
we've got the we've got the mouth of the horse speaking here. So let's give our listeners a leg up. Despite Robeson's concerns that we're giving away the ranch, I know that there's going to be an independent jury for this crowdsourced creative competition. But what tips do you have for people like us who want that $50,000? So what I did was I listened carefully to the argument that Free Speech for People made here based on Larry Tribe's argument and Al Shiller's argument. And I made an incredibly clumsy 13 minute long video. It's not as, no, don't run yourself down. It's not bad. (laughs) Okay. It's not bad. So I made a it's not bad video, but it's 13 minutes long, which in internet time is like an eternity, right? But it goes through step by step what how you get to the get to see what the essence of the logical mistake. And so what I what, what the winning video will do, like people can make videos of whatever they want. They can talk about the corruption of Harlan Pro, they can talk about the Supreme Court, they can talk about whatever they want, but the winning video will be one that makes the logical mistake so obvious that even Silberman, the author of the opinion, could look at it and say, oh my God, what was I thinking? It's clear that there's a mistake here and it's clear that means that super PACs are not protected by the First Amendment. And my dream is that somebody does that in 90 seconds or two minutes so that as you're flipping through your TikTok feed, if you are poisoning yourself with TikTok like that or anything else, you get it and you get it quick and then it becomes like conventional wisdom. Everybody says, yeah, obviously that was a mistake. And so what are we gonna do to fix it? So it is the video that focuses the most concisely and powerfully and effectively on the mistake and shows the mistake that will be the one that actually ultimately wins. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. All right, so a public service announcement. Here's what we're going to do because Paul and I were just these kind of guys. We want the money. I'm not going to make any bones about that. However, we will put this video link in the show notes on both the audio pod and this video. We will put it up on the community page. So all 25,000, we're going to email it out. My Blue Amp channel partner, Cliff Schechter, maintains a 1 million person email list. Guess what? You're all getting this email. We are going to crowdsource this because that's how much I care about American democracy, despite my own pecuniary interests. (laughs) All of that being said, I wanna talk for just a few minutes about your broader agenda at Equal Citizens. This aspect that we're talking about here is just one leg of a three-legged stool of your advocacy. We've just talked about what you call equal dependence, meaning you want our elected representatives to depend equally on all of us as citizens for financial support, essentially. We don't want five or six people sitting around divvying up a billion dollars. There are two other areas you focus on, equal representation and equal freedom to vote. Could you just quickly walk us through what are those other two areas? The equal representation is pretty familiar. This is the fight about gerrymandering and the idea that politicians draw the, the their districts to select themselves rather than voters voting for the politicians. And Democrats and Republicans do it each, some more extreme than others. But it produces states like the state of Wisconsin, where, you know, at the statewide level, that's a pretty purple state. It's 50-50 in every statewide election and for presidential elections too. Democrats have won a little bit more than the Republicans, but it's pretty close. But when you look at the state legislature, it's a super majority Republican state legislature. And why is that? Because of gerrymandering, because of the way they draw lines. And we think that's just obviously fundamentally unjust. If you want a representative democracy, we all should have equal voice and we shouldn't be boxed into our little district to make sure that the 
politicians get to choose who goes to Congress. So that's the obvious problem with equal representation. Equal freedom to vote points to all the tricks that get deployed by the administrators of election systems to make it harder for some to vote relative to others. So in New Hampshire, for example, there's been a lot of effort to make it harder for students to vote in New Hampshire. Why is that? It's not because people hate kids. It's because the kids are more likely to be Democrats than Republicans. And the people making those rules are Republicans who want to make sure that it's harder for these out of state, what they think of as out of state Democrats, even though they are qualified under state law to be voting in the state of New Hampshire. Those tricks too make it harder for some to vote relative to others. We think that too is a violation of this fundamental equality. We could add the electoral college to this story, right? So the electoral college is crafted. We've, we've done a bunch of litigation around this, none successful so far, to make it so that the president is selected by the majority of electoral votes, that's fine. But the electoral votes are, cho are determined through a winner-take-all system in all but two states. Maine and Nebraska have decisions by district, but the rest have winner-take-all. But what that means is that the only states that presidential candidates care about are the swing states, the states that could go one way or the other, which means about nine states are the focus of presidential campaigns. 41 states are irrelevant. Like, it doesn't matter if you're from what you think of, if you're from Kentucky or New York or California or Utah, those states could never flip. So no presidential candidate spends any time in those states except to raise money in New York and California. And so the point is, that denies equal representation as well. So all of these are about making it so that we all have, we all citizens have equal representation in our democracy. But let me just emphasize, of all of these problems, by far, by far, orders of magnitude, the most important is the money, because that corrupts absolutely everything that happens inside of the system, as people are bending over backwards to make sure that they've got the money they need, to win or their party needs to get into power or when they retire that make sure that they have a happy retirement. If we fix that problem first, it'll be much easier to fix these other problems. Too. You see, I was never corrupt enough. This is my happy retirement. <laughs> and so far, the revenue from this podcast has been bupkis. But let's put that aside. It's all three thing, all three of the issues you've talked about seem to be on the wrong side of our of the current Supreme Court a Supreme Court populated by very young conservative people who are going to be there for a long time. So what realistically is the best chance for reform for the issues that you're advocating? Look, first, the whole point of our first part of this podcast was that, in fact, the super PAC position we're advocating for is exactly what the Supreme Court says is the law. So I think we win in the Supreme Court on that. This Supreme Court said, yes, we as a court won't strike down partisan gerrymandering. But the opinion also said Congress is perfectly free to pass laws to eliminate partisan gerrymandering. And the For the People Act, H.R. 1, which came within one vote of the Senate, I'm not counting Sinema because she would have done whatever Manchin would have done, but one vote in the Senate of passed would have addressed partisan gerrymandering. And the Supreme Court said that's fine too. And the suppression of vote, there's nothing in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence that says you must suppress Democratic votes relative to Republican votes. We could get reforms and the John Lewis part of HR1 would have made those reforms to make it so everybody would have an equal freedom to vote. So all of those are issues that the Supreme Court would allow. The most important additional issue, which HR1 or the Freedom to Vote Act had as well, is to change the way we fund campaigns. So again, Freedom to Vote Act would have allowed states to experiment with vouchers 
to make it just like Seattle does. Everybody has a voucher that they can use to, can to contribute to campaigns. Would have set up the opportunity to have matching funds as, as New York City has to you give some money and that gets matched by the government or even just played out systems like Arizona or Connecticut, which say you qualify for a certain amount, we'll give you that. You qualify, we'll give you a certain amount to run your campaign. All of those would have been enabled under HR1, and the Supreme Court has been perfectly clear that all of those are constitutional. So I don't believe the court would block reform if we could build the political movement to actually effectively demand reform. And I think the first step is to remove, to push off the table, the corrupting influence of these super PACs, because as you're right, we haven't had a lot of super PACs stepping up and saying we're eager to support your ability to destroy our super PAC power. I want to start a super PAC against all super PACs, call it Project Irony, to say we'll raise billions of dollars for the purpose of ending super PACs. I'm all for that, but again, I haven't found the billionaires eager to step in. This is another point. Ten years ago, when this fight started, we in fact did set up a super PAC to try to end super PACs. And we found all sorts of liberal billionaires who were like, hell yeah, we're all for this. This is really terrible, this corrupting system. But 10 years later, people have gotten used to the system. Democrats, yeah. as much as Republicans, are like, yeah, it's pretty cool. You don't have to talk to 50,000 people to raise money. You just gotta talk to five and it's a lot better. So I, what we're finding is it's harder to find the influence people to support mm -hmm. reform, surprise, surprise. And that's why we're trying to build it from the bottom up, from the grassroots up through something like this, this campaign that tries to bring in the largest number of people to try to show what's obvious once anybody sits back and thinks about it. I think the Stockholm syndrome, especially in the Democratic yeah. Party, is very real. I think we have begun to identify with our captors. And look, I'm very familiar with this in all kinds of realms of politics where you get used to a certain set of rules and you begin to figure out how to work around them and game them. And then you fear change. Let me get you out of here on this. And I think I know the answer to this. I think you just provided it, which is, and I'm going to, I'm going to give the answer up front and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, which is, okay, the rules may be stacked against people who want equal citizenship, who want equal democracy, who want equal access, but that could be our excuse or it could just simply be what is. And the best way to fix all of these problems is more democracy, is more active citizenship. And that's what you're trying to achieve with this video, which strikes me as a really good idea. Now, let me circle back to the problem that's on my mind. I was just interviewed on a radio show yesterday about this broader pattern here. Now, you, you probably are trying not to be inherently partisan. These issues aren't inherently partisan. You gave an example of a Democratic senator in speaking about corruption. And so you're trying not to be partisan, but I can be partisan about this. Because I don't see this as a both sides situation. There's one party that has primarily driven voter suppression. There's one party that has pushed for and benefited disproportionately more from dark money. And one party that has driven and benefited more from gerrymandering. And when all of the outcomes of all of this warping of the system don't go that party's way, then we've seen violent instances where they just say, forget about it. We're going to overturn the system. We're going to overturn the government. And now we have a series of situations where elected, I'll say it, Republican leaders are simply ignoring laws. We have Kay Ivey in Alabama simply signing a new gerrymandered map when the Supreme Court said, thou shalt not. We have the Ohio legislature drawing new gerrymandered maps when their Supreme Court said, you shall not. And they're just ignoring the system of laws what can be done about that? I gave you my answer. 
Am I right? Is there anything else we can do? You're right about the pathetic state that exists at the level of our leaders. And I'm perfectly happy to say as a Democrat, I think Republicans bear the brunt of the blame for this. Not just the elected officials, also the media that profits from the same kind of craziness. How do we run a democracy where the platforms of our media make more money the more they make us ignorant and hate each other? That's the reality of American politics today. But that's why I don't think we need to, we should be focusing at the level of the leaders. Because the mm. reality is, if you talk to ordinary voters, take a state like New Hampshire, which I, for a lot of reasons, have spent a lot of time in meetings and talking in New Hampshire. Republicans, as much as Democrats, look at the system and say, it's a corrupted system. Republicans, as much as Democrats, say, money is corrupting what we do. Now, they're focused on different money. They might be focused on Hollywood's money rather than on coal companies' money, whatever. But they all, at a certain sense, say, at a certain level, say, this is a corrupted system. And I think the big mistake of the Democratic Party has been not to rally around an issue both sides agree with you on, and instead take up issues that tend to divide us. Now, I happen to agree with the Democratic Party on the issues they take up that divide us. Like I think voting rights, especially across race, I think transgender rights, I think issues around sexual orientation are extremely important issues. That personally, I've got members of my family who are, who are suffering in a world where intolerance is growing. So I don't minimize the significance of those issues at all. And I don't think that we should be hesitant to say what's right and wrong about them. But politically, strategically, we've got to begin to build majorities that are cross-partisan majorities. And here is one that would be the most consequential cross-partisan majority we could achieve. If we could build a cross-partisan majority among voters to say enough of this damn corruption, let's end it, let's end the power of money. Then I think, then I think we could begin to achieve the kind of results that could build other kinds of majorities as well. But I think this has got to be our fight because if we don't win this fight, I'm not even sure if we do win this fight, it's, it's not too late. But if we don't win this fight, it's certainly not any number of these important issues we're certainly not going to be able to address in a sensible way. If I could just editorialize for a second, we saw profound and powerful evidence in the 2018 midterm elections that your exact argument is very real and very full of proof. Referenda on the ballot in a variety of states, including purple and flat out red states like Missouri, Colorado, South Dakota, flat out wiped the floor and ran 20 points ahead on average of the top of the ticket Democratic candidates, reform issues, and across the board, including money in politics and independent redistricting commissions. I think you are onto something and you are definitely onto something with this crowdsourced video competition. Once again, because I guess we don't have our own financial interests at heart, Paul and I are going to put all of the information and links about that in the show notes. Check it out. Get involved, people. If you can't get involved at a grassroots level in politics, you can at least get involved in this way and maybe make yourself some money. Lawrence Lessig, thank you so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me.